This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Esports is a good aberration. We're still moving forward. We're part of something much bigger than sport right now. The health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. It was a busy week, as it always is, in the world of sports and especially in that nexus of money and sports. I want to start, actually, with the Washington football team. They're keeping their name for now. And Dan Snyder, who I have to say, guys... We talked about this last summer and everything that was going on with not just the naming, but more a lot of the allegations around the work culture and sexual harassment. I'm kind of surprised that he's still hanging around. Not only is he hanging around, he bought out his minority shareholders at a pretty deep discount. He is fully in charge now. And Dan Snyder... Reign supreme, Lynchy, and uh, not sure we all saw that coming. He's Michael Corleone. He's taking care of family business right now. <laughs> <laughs> Bank of America was a dissident. Nike was a dissident. Pepsi was a dissident. FedEx was a dissident last year when they had the name change. They're going to all be gone now, and he's going to be all by himself. He's going to probably make the decision by himself, although he says he's going to have some input on what the name of the new Washington football team will be. Fortunately, he's got a guy like Jason Wright as the team president. Yeah. Uh, who, t- who took care of team business while Snyder's taking care of family business and had that team in the playoffs last year when so many storms were swirling around that franchise. They had every excuse in the world not to put a good product on the field. And through Jason Wright's leadership, they made the playoffs. Michael Barr, I do, <laughs> I do want to turn it over to you because uh, you know we talked about how long it's going to take for them to name a team. But you brought up uh, when we were talking about this yesterday a very good point, which is there's a lot of money riding on this decision of what you call the Washington Football Team. Yeah, you're not going to fool around with this. This is going to be, as they say, run up the flagpole in numerous meetings. And once you get that team name, there's a lot of money behind it with the merchandising. They're going to take their time. But by the way, I want to add that Dan Snyder, he is paying roughly $900 million for the minority stakes. So he's the man at the dinner table now. Uh, Switching over, if we can, briefly to the NHL, firing a referee for a comment caught on a hot mic. Let's listen to a piece of that. It wasn't much, but I wanted to get a... Yeah, so there you go, bleep and all. Uh, Lynchy, what do you make of this? I mean, obviously dismissed by by the NHL. Feels like he was not doing it. He was making. He was not sort of calling an honest game necessarily. Uh, you you've been a ref. You refed mm. Patrick Ewing, which was a quick flex that we had a couple weeks ago uh, on this show. What do you make of this? 
Well, I think that, you know, most of good officials, solid officials, if they blow a call, they'll go over to the coach and the bench and just say, look, I blew that one. And that way you don't have it hanging on your conscience that you have to have a make good yeah. uh, or even thing, even things up. So, you know, Peel made the big mistake right there. But, you know, the National Hockey League, they fired him, which was the right thing to do. They're gonna, the NBA examines all the calls in the last two minutes to try to see if there's a pattern of makeups or make good calls. And the NHL, I think, should adopt that, that same standard maybe in the last five minutes or crucial time or overtime to see if there are make good or make up calls how many times have we seen ticky tack calls and it doesn't make a difference whether it's been in hockey and basketball whether it's in football we see these calls all the time and and i i have a different feeling about it but i agree with you lynchy a good ref is a good ref um, well, later on, we're going to talk with the head of Lucas Oil Stadium. He is the host in Indianapolis of the whole March Madness shebang. Uh, on the men's side, the ratings are down 12% uh, in the first two rounds compared to 2019, which was the last time that there was a tournament. Uh, that feels meaningful to me, Lynchy, and even in a tournament where there has been a lot of drama. Well, you can uh, take two schools when you want to answer that question. Can no Kentucky, no Duke in yeah. this tournament this year? So that might be a reason for it. And they changed this whole schedule. I mean, I was ready to you know get horizontal on Thursday and Friday, but it didn't <laughs> didn't start till Friday. Yeah. And now this weekend, instead, it's it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So I think that's a little bit that uh, has to do with it. But it's like everything. I mean, the World Series were down. The NBA Finals were down. It's just different without fans, without the bands. I mean, this is, I call it the greatest show on earth, uh, the, this March Madness. And I think missing those fans and the, and the bands and that, that passion, that element. But you still had those Cinderella stories. You, know, you still, Oral Roberts has the Cinderella story that was going. I mean, it was, it's exciting to see a team. It's, I, I'm not making fun of Oral Roberts, but it would be like if Mayberry made it to the, the final four. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Um, well, speaking of how we watch games, uh, and we talked last week about the big NFL contract and the fact that Amazon is going to own Thursday night when it comes to the NFL. Well, your New York Yankees, not yours, Lynchy, uh, are going to stream <laughs> 21 games on Amazon Prime this year. Listen, baseball needs to catch up in, in some ways, and if that's how we're going to see the Yankees, then so be it. And it'll be interesting to see what the uptake is. I do think that consumption is changing for sure. You know, I count myself among the, the cord cutters, and I've managed to watch a lot of sports. Good to see baseball kind of kind of getting with it. Well, earlier this week, we caught up with author Devin Gordon. He's got a new book. It's called So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, The Best Worst Team in Sports. He talked about the shrewd business move Fred Wilpon made in purchasing the Mets, how the business of baseball is starting to slope downward. And before we hear a little bit from Devin directly, guys, I was so taken with this book and candidly very taken with Devin because he is such a passionate Mets fan, but incredibly self-aware, as I guess you have to be, Lynchy, if you have <laughs> devoted yourself to a team that, as he says, is really, really good at losing. You know, I think the runner-up, uh, in case the Mets cannot fulfill their obligation and their duties, would go to the Boston Red Sox. Uh, that's a you know, Miss America thing at the end. I always wonder, why is losing more fun than winning? And <laughs> because it gives you a lot of fodder to, to write and to talk about. And the Mets certainly have given uh, everyone that's a Mets fan 
uh, a lot of that fodder. Uh, they come so close, they break your heart, and, and they're fun. They're fun to watch losing. Well, I don't think we're going to hear this part of the conversation, but I, I would uh, commend you to listen to the whole thing because <laughs> the uh, lack of pity and the lack of sympathy uh, that Devin Gordon has for Red Sox fans is notable. And he is a guy who uh, concedes that he lives in the Boston area now, so he sees it, uh, he sees it up close and personal. But, you know, Lynchy brings up a really good point, Barr, and, and this came up in the interview as well, you know, that you, as a Detroit Tigers fan, especially, um, you know, you feel the, feel the pain uh, as well. There is some camaraderie that comes from sort of suffering through these seasons with a, with a hapless franchise. Yeah, it's a lot of Pepto-Bismol sold in my house, man, because you have to deal with it. If you're going to be a Tigers fan, if you're going to be a Lions fan, you got to be all in. And that's why I have always said that Detroit fans are some of the best fans ever because for a lot of times we know this season is going to go south. But at least Devin brought the point out that there are a lot of teams that are in the same boat as the Mets. And there is some brotherhood, I guess if you want to call it that, of, of something like that going on. And like you said, Lynchy, even – before you guys went off on a tear, you guys were you guys were having some problems, and it it, it was scary. Well, I I do want to point out something that's very important and, and very relevant to this show, which is even these franchises. The Red Sox are a great example. The Mets are clearly a great example with their recent sale to Stephen Cohen. These are incredibly valuable franchises. Now, there's a big argument to be made about where they play being as important uh, as it is, whether it's New York or Boston or some of these major market teams. We know the value of the broadcast revenue. We were reminded of that uh, just a couple weeks ago with the NFL, how important uh, that is. And that was very much on the mind, maybe not on everybody's mind, but that was definitely on the mind of Fred Wilpon when he did buy the team back in the 70s. Check out what Devin Gordon had to say. You're hitting on an interesting point, and it's one of the things that um, I like to do in the book is, and just in general in telling stories, is to try to complicate a case, not take the counterintuitive or argue, for instance, in this case, the Wilpons were actually you know geniuses and great owners because they weren't. They are what we think they were, but the telling of it gets richer, which is Fred Wilpon in the late 70s was one of the few people in New York City who was like, there's only one National League baseball team in New York City right now, and in 50 years, there's only going to be one National League baseball team in New York City. That's really valuable. And anybody in New York City at that time who had money could have had this insight, but he had it. And they bought the team for $21 million. And of that $21 million, he managed to become the controlling partner of the team despite putting in only $350,000 of his own money. I'm starting to think Fred Wilpon might have been on to something, yeah. right? And, and so when we tell these histories, his insight that this would be a hugely valuable thing, surely even more valuable than he probably ever reckoned, echoes into right now there's only one national league baseball team in new york city it is a very valuable thing and it'll be a very valuable thing for 50 years for as long as we play baseball and but on the flip side the idea that that the billions that stevie cohen represents is going to come to our rescue 
and turn us from the Mets into the Yankees. Oh, that's just an adorable thought. I mean, that's just adorable. You know, like, no way. Have you been paying attention this whole spring training? I mean, come on. Yeah, and I, you know, there are some things about it that are not necessarily bad. There is something really nice and romantic about being that invested in your home team. And it's fine because other sports are another way. That's fine. The NBA is not that way. And, you know, football has kind of gone almost in a, a flip where, you know, like you were saying, you would have your home game and then you'd have a national game. And it was always the same teams, right? You know, the Bucks were never on the, the national game. Um, but now the NFL, we all watch everything, right? Yeah. You're either going to a bar or you're watching Red Zone um, and you watch every game. Um, in fact, I think I saw some data from Axios that was really interesting. It said something about how um, NFL fans, you know, really do watch all the games for the most part, whereas MLB fans and NBA fans enjoy highlights more than the actual game. And that was Devin Gordon, author of the new book, So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, The Best Worst Team in Sports. Check out the entire conversation we had with him. It was a lot of fun. It's a terrific book, not just for the Mets fan in your life, God bless him, but for anybody who really wants to understand what it is to be a fan, but also he really does get into, and he got into with us and in the book, some of the economics, some of the business decisions that were made. Of course, uh, anyone who's followed the Mets knows that the association with Bernie Madoff and his family that the Wilpon family had obviously devastated the economics of the team and led to uh, the sale to Stevie Cohen. He also talks about um, what we may expect uh, from the new owner. Uh, cautiously optimistic, I believe. Well, I'm sure Devin Gordon is going to burn all those issues of Sports Illustrated that he can get his hands on. <laughs> because that big face of Francisco Lindor is just irresistible for anybody who believes in the jinx of Sports Illustrated. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll check out that entire conversation. It's on our podcast feed. Let's get into a conversation with Eric Newberger. a very, very timely conversation because he's the Lucas Oil Stadium director at the center of all of it in Indianapolis. March Madness has one address, essentially, and it's Indianapolis. Eric, really nice to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so you understand the business of sports as well as anyone from the college level, from the sports level. We'll talk about college maybe a little bit later on in your experience at, at IU. But you know, tell us about the mechanics and, and some of the economics of this year because this is not what people are used to with March Madness. Yeah, it's really unique in almost every way, other than uh, when you watch this on TV, hopefully you have the experience you're accustomed to. But we've been working for several months, which is a much shorter time period than you would normally have for an event of this scale, to put together uh, a, a product that folks at home will really enjoy and that the teams traveling to Indianapolis can have a terrific experience participating in. Your stadium was able to keep all of its employees and staff uh, during this COVID era, uh, how did you guys do it? Or did you? Yeah, you know, we, we, we really were um, largely successful at that. You know, back uh, 
back in March of 2020 when all of this was going down. Um, in retrospect, it could either have been uh, foolish or smart, but what, what we decided to do was to try to smooth out the ups and downs that we thought we were going to be expecting. So we did make some, uh, some, some changes and furloughs and temporary furloughs that took place on a week-to-week basis with the idea that if we could keep our talent and our team together, that we would be among the first to be back to be able to take advantage of the, the economics that, that might present itself when we're through this pandemic. Take me through some of the logistics. So you're going to have 25,000 for the final four uh, in a 70, basically 70,000 seat stadium. Uh, the seats, I, I assume, are clearly marked. Do you have to fully staff that entire arena? I'm talking like every concession stand. Um, do, do people have to go up the aisle in the section they came in and use that concession stand or that merchandise stand? Or are they allowed to walk around freely in the concourse? Well, really what we've got going on is two venues in one. So there's a curtain that divides the building at about the 50-yard line. And, and really you cannot cross from one to the other. But within that, we have about 22% capacity of those seats that have a view of, of each particular court. And what happens there is we really wanted to make sure that every pod of either two or four or six uh, people, uh, presumably of the same household, were at least six feet apart. So that's what really drove our capacity number. But yes, what we do then is we try to make sure that we have uh, more than enough concessions, restrooms, all those types of amenities available for everybody that's coming to the event. And so, Eric, help us understand economic impact from the the broader city perspective. I mean, you understand this intimately. You know what it's like when it's sort of game on in a full non-pandemic way. You do have people coming in. You obviously have more teams. You've had more teams than than you would normally have, but, but obviously not the spectators. So how does that all kind of balance out for the local community economically? Yeah, well, much of it remains to be seen, but what we're betting on is that there will be significant uh, travel into the city, um, staying at our hotels, taking in our restaurants, and enjoying the games at all the facilities. The way it works in Indianapolis is we have a great community partnership, kind of led by our state and our city governments, as well as the Indiana Sports Corporation, which is our local sports commission. We are a tourism-driven city. Um, conventions and sports are, are what make um, the, the the whole downtown area work. And we think that uh, we're the favorite of so many of these um, sports entities because everything is so accessible to one another. So what we're really hoping is that with the teams, the hotels, really getting this jump start back, that we'll be prepared to host all of the other events that are on our schedule for the rest of the year and it will help us recruit other events for the future. That includes also football, obviously, because during the fall season, hopefully we'll be back to some normalcy and you can uh, pack all 70,000 people at Lucas Oil Field. Yeah, we're really optimistic that there will be a time here in the future that that um, because everybody has uh, accessibility to the vaccine and everybody has learned a lot about keeping each other safe, that we'll be able to have a much more robust crowd presence this fall. So, Eric, you know, help us understand where it does go from here in terms of what's some of the 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 economics and what some of the logistics are 
in the in this near to to midterm, what you change, what you've learned about running a stadium more safely, more efficiently from the experience of navigating this pandemic? Yeah, well, some of the initial changes that we made were going to exclusively digital tickets. Uh, we also went to contactless payment systems so that uh, we don't we no longer accept cash at Lucas Oil Stadium. So we have machines that folks who have cash can turn it into a card, and that reduces the contact points and hopefully reduces the spread of the virus. We've also, um, we really believe in masks. We know that the science tells us that that mask wearing will help us keep our events safe. And so we enforce that uh, very stringently and have a lot of signage, a lot of guidance on where to walk. And then, of course, we zip tie any seats that are not part of the ticketing manifest to make sure that folks aren't crowding together. Lucas Oil Stadium uh, officially opened to the public in 2008, and uh, it has a contract with Lucas Oil, obviously. Uh, and uh, but that is going to wrap up soon. It's going to wrap up uh, in a few years. Have you had any plans to talk to Lucas Oil about coming back? So the stadium enjoys a 35-year lease with the Indianapolis Colts, and as part of that, the Indianapolis Colts themselves actually negotiate the naming rights for the stadium. And I know they're working hard. I know everybody really enjoys our relationship with Lucas Oil Products and uh, uh, hopeful that that can continue beyond that contract. Eric, is, is the ticket packages normally uh, you have to buy the whole package, Saturday, the uh, semifinals and the final four night. Uh, is this the same out there tonight, uh, this weekend and the following weekend coming up? For Final Four, the way you described it's accurate. Um, for all these other uh, Elite Eight games and for the first and second round games that we've already hosted, each game was ticketed individually, which was a departure from how they've typically done uh, ticketing for March Madness. So, Eric, I want to broaden the conversation a little bit, talk a little bit more about college basketball. You know it intimately. Listen, if, if you're from Indiana, it, it's in your blood. I mean, there's a there's a darn movie um, that's all about sort of high school basketball and then into the college level. It's legendary across all, uh, all aspects of the game. March Madness obviously is vitally important to the NCAA. What do you think has changed about college basketball through this? What have we learned? And, and what have we learned about the tournament uh, having done it this way that, that may affect how we think about March Madness going forward? Yeah, college basketball and basketball in Indiana, they're ubiquitous, right? And uh, what, we, what we think that we've learned here is that, um, that there's a lot of benefit to doing things in, in, a, in a particular city. There's a lot of efficiencies that could be had. In fact, we were able to bring the Big Ten basketball tournament a month after the, the NCAA tournament was announced to Indianapolis uh, for some of those very reasons. I think college basketball remains one of the iconic sports in our country, and Indianapolis being the center of it all, um, we, we're just glad to be taking part in that. At one time, you worked at the Indiana University Athletics Department. What was that experience like? Uh, truly one of the, the best 10 years of my life. I was an Indiana University alumnus and worked in the department as a student and was able to come back about five years after that 
and worked for the next 10 years ultimately as a senior associate athletic director there with a lot of responsibilities throughout the department. It's really a dream come true and something I never thought that I would ever leave until this opportunity at Lucas Oil Stadium presented itself to me about four years ago. So, Eric, uh, this is Mike Lynch up in Boston, and you know where this question's going. Uh, we've got Brad Stevens, the coach of the Celtics, and uh, I know that uh, there have been whispers in his ear, come back home to Indiana. Uh, would, would, would IU like to make a rush, uh, run at Brad Stevens' uh, full-court press to try to get him to come back? Speaking from a personal opinion, I love Brad Stevens. He made <laughs> such an impact on this tournament. And, and I know Scott Dolson so well. He's, he's one of the best uh, people in this industry. And, and uh, I have no inside information on that, unfortunately, but I know that he'll make a wonderful decision. <laughs> and so, uh, Eric, you know, talking about the the pro level a, a little bit, help us understand the business of the NFL r- right now as well, because obviously it is it remains the big sport in the United States. And anybody who has any doubts, just look at that big TV contract uh, that was just signed across all the networks, including uh, Amazon. What do you think about the upcoming season? What was learned? Uh, sort of similar to what we were talking about earlier about college basketball. Like, what did the NFL learn about executing its games and fans and interacting with them that you think will will move forward and, and maybe be especially prevalent this coming season, the twenty one season? Yeah, I think we're going to continue to see adjustments being made because of the pandemic this season. I am optimistic that we'll have more folks um, in the buildings and and have more fan engagement and things like that that we weren't able to do this year. For instance, there was no cheerleaders on the field. There was no in-game promotions uh, just because we're trying to keep everybody safe. So I'm hopeful that some of these things will uh, squeak back into the into the mix this year. There's uh, you know certainly a gigantic appetite for football in this country and and I think it was a huge success that the NFL was able to complete a a season so successfully this year. If I can follow up on that, I mean, I do wonder about you know, sponsors who rely so much on in-game signage and in-stadium signage, were there renegotiations that had to happen from a stadium perspective and from or is that handled by the teams, by you guys? Like, how does that all break down in terms of the economic sort of ecosystem, especially around the NFL? Yeah, you know, in Indianapolis, um, it it may be a little different than in other cities, but the the team themselves handles the sponsorships. But I do know that we worked hard with our partners there to make sure that we could keep everybody as happy as possible. And frankly, everybody was very understanding of the circumstances that we've that we've all found ourselves in, and we're hopeful that that it was uh, a short lived in the long run. What's it like in Indianapolis because you are the city in Indiana because not only, obviously, that Lucas Oil Field where you have the Colts, but it's also the home to the Indianapolis 500. And if if things go as according to plan, uh, people are going to come back, like you said earlier, and uh, the uh, attraction for tourists to come into the city is going to be off the hook. Can you tell us what it's like and how the impact uh, is going for you now and what do you expect to see in the future? Well, I do know that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is about to embark on a 16-day vaccination uh, effort for for the entire state. So we're hopeful that that's just the beginning of uh, a lot of visitors to the 
Speedway there. It's a big part of our economic activity in Indianapolis and getting people into hotels. Indianapolis is great, though. The, the, the nice thing about it is everybody works together, from our mayor to our governor to the sports commissions to our convention and visitors bureau. Everybody's got the same goal in mind. And, and we're kind of a city where if somebody asks, can we do something, we say yes, and then we figure it out. And that's been kind of our M.O., frankly. That's how we've gotten ourselves into the position of hosting this magnificent tournament. Eric, I want to get back to sponsorships, and I know you said the individual teams usually handle them, but we talked to Randy Levine of the Yankees. He said that you know a lot of his big sponsors uh, were de- uh, just financially devastated by the pandemic and couldn't come back and re-up. Have you found that the same out in Indianapolis that they're finding in New York? Well, I don't have any inside information on any particular contracts, but I do know that it's been challenging. And and so many of the sponsors depend on actually interacting with people, whether it's within the venue or outside the venue uh, at at some of their own stores and and retail establishments. So uh, I I do think that it was painful this year. And the longer this goes, the harder it will be to maintain the traditional models of sponsorship. Eric, uh, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Eric Newberger is Lucas Oil Stadium's director uh, at the center of the action as we wind down or at least uh, get further and further into a very, very different March Madness. Uh, host of the Final Four, so check that out. Obviously, uh, who knows who's going to be there uh, when the dance concludes. Uh, Eric, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, guys, really interesting to get the perspective of somebody who's in charge of the building uh, that is at literally the center of March Madness this year. You know, I think he he essentially alluded to it. And my takeaway is this turned out pretty well for Indianapolis. And I feel like going forward, this is a real solid kind of line, maybe more than a line on the city of Indianapolis's resume, assuming that we see a, a healthy conclusion, as it were, to to March Madness through the Final Four. You know, we always had one team, uh, Virginia Commonwealth, who, who had to come out of the tournament. But generally speaking, it's all gone pretty well. And I will say, from my perspective as a fan and as a consumer, the, the product coming through the TV, which, which is really the most important thing, has been great, Lynching. It has. And... Uh... If a personal note, I've been to 11 Super Bowls with the Patriots, and three of them have been in New Orleans, and one of them was in Indianapolis, and I would rank it as one of my favorite places to host a Super Bowl because they know how to host big sporting events. They've got the Indy 500 every year. There's always some type of amateur athletic uh, championship going on, be it cheerleading or gymnastics. And most cities, I mean every city that gets awarded a Final Four, has years to prepare. They had a few months, yeah, and they're they're as well equipped as any city in this country to host it, and that's that's because experience matters when it comes to putting on events like this. Well, and Barr, not just hosting a Final Four, hosting you know this the city hosted the, the whole dang thing, you know, in in yeah. terms of you know having to have all the teams there, you know, I do wonder, and and he hinted at this that you you wonder if the NCAA and and other. Uh, types of big sporting events say, well, you know what, maybe in addition to the Final Four, maybe we do the weekend before <laughs> in, in, in one place as well. I mean, listen, I know we love, you know, all the regional games and, and all of us, uh, either professionally or personally, 
have taken fun trips and road trips to to various regions. I remember um, way back in the day uh, during the Allen Iverson days at Georgetown, you know, taking a road trip from Washington down to Birmingham to to see the Hoyas play in in the region down there. And and that's a fun part of the tournament. But the economics and the logistics of it, you know, do change the equation. Well, if you are a school in the tournament, it makes big sense just to play in the state. There were six venues altogether for March Madness, and obviously Lucas Oil Stadium, and there were five others. It makes a lot of sense just to keep it all in one state. I think that's going to be the model from this point forward. I do wonder about Don't you wonder about that, Lynchy? If, if the NCAA is like, you know what, guys? This actually worked pretty well. Now, <laughs> I, I'm not sure that there are – there are probably only a small handful of cities who could pull that off in terms of the sheer – number of of venues you would you would have to have but there are probably six or six or eight cities i would think around the country who could do it i mean it's sort of like putting on the olympics uh over the over yeah. the course of a couple of weeks well you have to think about a city that has a lot of arenas or gymnasiums like uh like boston for example you've got yeah. harvard you've got Bo- uh, boston university boston college northeastern you've got the garden um you know the same place like los angeles chicago but i i, I think it's going to be tough to get away from all these because these cities bid for, yeah. uh, for these things. I mean, it's a place like Buffalo gets it, a place like, you know, these places that don't have uh, major uh, NBA teams right. or major college basketball teams. It really makes their year. And those, those you know, uh, eight games that are in there, just the economic impact, uh, every restaurant is full. And, and thousands of people come into the city who don't even have tickets to the game. They just, they just watch the games on big screens outside the yeah. arena or in restaurants mm-hmm. and bars around. So yeah. I, I think it would be, be tough to, to have it be one-stop shopping. Yeah, interesting. Interesting to see uh, what what we learn. I mean, I feel like we're in that phase uh, of the pandemic. Hopefully, you know, knock on wood here that it's all about like, all right, so so what are we, you know, what, what are we keeping from this experience? And uh, be interesting to see what they do on the margins or, or more than more than the margins here. Well, it, it went, before we get to the number of the week, and and you are exactly right. I mean, it, this is going to come down to. Uh, us getting back to some normalcy, and it it, it will happen. It uh, it's going to happen. It's just I want to see people in the stands, and and maybe we've learned something too, uh, just simply about hygiene. Is like yeah. wash your dog on hands, and and you stay safe. And you know I don't know how long we're going to be wearing masks. You know I'll probably be wearing one for a long time, but uh, at least we can get back to some normalcy. Yeah, and I think you raised such a good point, Bart, like in the sense of, you know, one of the things that definitely happened over the course of this, and this is a little bit of a divergence, but people weren't, you know, going anywhere if if they had the sniffles or had a cold. You know, I mean, like the whole idea of like, and I I dare say every single one of us and probably most of the people listening have been guilty of this. It's like, yeah, I've got a little bit of a cold, but I'm going to go to the office anyway. Can you imagine like showing up to the office, like in the future showing up and like sniffling and sneezing everywhere? People are going to be like... Get out, get out now, or I'm going to carry you out, or I'm going to call security. Like, and I do think, I mean, there's an economic element to that too, of you know productivity and and you know all those different things. So we'll see. You know, one one thing I'd like to see, I'd like to know when the game is being played at Hinkle Fieldhouse or at Bankers Life Stadium. It's really hard to tell unless there's like a, a wide cutaway yes. or something, you know, because the floor is so, it's a, it's, it's a generic floor in every single venue there. And, yeah. and I can't tell. I said, oh, are they Lucas? I really want to know. And it's really hard to tell. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. 
my goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. All right, here we go. Here we go. Number of the week. This one, well, it's on Fanatics and the valuation of Fanatics. Now, this is according to Sportico. I will say this, that the Fanatics raised $320 million in a new funding round, and it values the world's largest seller of licensed sports merchandise at what? Well, we obviously are in a boom around all of this, as we know from this show. I will go. I'll go eleven billion. Um. Well, let's see. Usually, I try to undercut Jason, and uh, I'm just gonna go. I'm gonna throw it out there. Uh, I looked at sixteen banks row, and I'm gonna go sixteen billion. How's that? According to someone familiar with the terms, it is valued at twelve. Point eight billion. Ah, <laughs> here we go. You know, see that I couldn't say anything because after Lynch, after you, you Jason says something, I'll say Lynchy, Lynchy. And, and I'll give it all away. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why I stayed silent. It's like twelve point eight billion. That's and that's double, by the way, from uh, what it was about seven months ago. So that's amazing. I mean, but it, but it totally checks out. I mean, given I mean this this whole market is going bananas to use a technical financial term. Um, I just you know I, I these valuations are getting a, a little bit a little bit crazy. I have to say yeah. so. But you know, I mean the the money is certainly flowing there. I guess the question is. Does it continue to? Well, you've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. For those questions and more, check us out. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. Those drop on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. In the meantime, find me, Jason Kelly, on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can find me at LynchyWCVB. And I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. You are listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. <laughs> 